0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine
1: Today I'm speaking with Quinton Bruno, Assistant Professor of Politics at the New School for Social Research, about his new book, States and the Masters of Capital, Sovereign Lending Old and New, from Columbia University Press. This book examines how our financial world has shifted through the case study of sovereign lending. In the 19th century, sovereign lending was dominated by merchant bank families who depended on trust over statistics and sought status as much as they did profit. Today, sovereign lending is dominated by large banks, who rely almost entirely on statistics. In this thoughtful historical analysis, Quinton helps make sense of our current financial world by looking at how it used to be, why it changed, and why it will likely transform again. Quinton, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network.
2: Thank you, Caleb. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Of course. You know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this book, but before jumping into it, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, so I was trained in uh, political science and sociology mostly, and uh, later on uh, I studied international relations uh, in graduate school um, in the United Kingdom. And perhaps it's worth noting uh, international relations has a slightly more expensive uh, meaning in the United Kingdom, I think, than it does uh, in the U.S. So, so that's for my sort of academic uh, background.
1: How did you decide to write this book?
2: Initially, I wasn't very interested in financial questions. And as I began my undergraduate degree, um, the, it was in the midst of the crisis, the financial crisis of 07, 08. And, um, and then later on, as I was finishing uh, the sovereign debt crisis in Europe in 2010. Uh, and as this was all unfolding, uh, I was trying to make sense of it all. Uh, by uh, buying the Financial Times uh, when I, like, I could afford it uh, <laughs> as an undergrad. And um, and I kept reading about things like uh, credit rating agencies downgrading uh, states, you know, from AAA to AA or something like that. Um, and, you know, I could understand maybe a third of the articles, but I found the whole thing very puzzling. And uh, I would say that This sort of episode got me thinking a lot about the relationship between states and and financial markets more generally. So that's the kind of set of events, I think, that that provoked this this interest uh, in sovereign debt and and international finance. Um, And then there are perhaps two sort of further encounters, intellectual encounters in in graduate school that uh, led me to write this book. Um, The first was when I moved to the UK and I encountered what was a very sort of historical approach to international relations, sometimes associated with something called the English School of International Relations. And these people, uh, the ones I encountered at least, were interested in sort of deep historical transformations in the nature of the international system. And one of the ways in which they studied those transformations uh, was through the study of international political and uh, legal thought. So by studying the thought of sort of great thinkers like Hobbes, Grotius or Vattel, um, they were hoping to uh, sort of tell a story about the transformation of the international system. And I, I found this very stimulating Um But what I found sort of puzzling was that, first of all, there were very few practitioners in these accounts. So it was always great thinkers, never practitioners, and even less so uh, financiers. I mean, they were like totally irrelevant to the stories these guys were telling. So I I found the whole body of work very stimulating. At the same time, uh, there was like something missing for me there. And so that's for the first encounter. Then there, I had a second kind of intellectual encounter that was more on my own, I suppose. And that was with a set of what you might call sort of Polanyi-inspired works about how policymakers and intellectual had uh, thought about the place that financial markets um, should occupy or did occupy in relation to, to states and how that had changed over time. Uh, and again, this was a very sort of productive encounter for me. I'm thinking here of works like uh, Eric Helliner's States and the Reemergence of Global Finance um, or Rawi Abdullal's Capital Rules, books of this sort. Um, but again, uh, one of the things I was kind of surprised by was that at the center of these stories were always policymakers, state persons, etc. sometimes intellectuals. Uh, but there were very few sort of market actors, uh, people running companies, financiers. Uh, and so they were kind of absent uh, from the story or if they were there, sort of minor characters uh, who didn't really uh, require or deserve too much consideration. Um, so I think these two encounters, intellectual encounters, in addition to the kind of interest I developed with the financial crisis in all things sort of financial, um yeah, they kind of led me to, to produce this specific book, I think, yeah.
1: You make a really interesting point in the book that if you want to understand the worldview of a philosopher or a judge, it's pretty easy because they wrote down mm. what they thought. Uh, and you make the point that for a lot of financiers, uh, this isn't the case. You won't find their worldviews uh, written down. So... Uh, I suppose I'm wondering, you know, in order to reconstruct that uh, for your research, you know, which scholars, texts, ideas did you find most influential in reconstructing the view of a financier?
2: Well, um, perhaps uh, before I, I answer your question, I should say a few words on, on what you you point out, which is the, my approach to, to the the kind of question I'm interested in, this question of how financiers think about uh, the states or the sovereign borrowers to which they lend uh, capital. Um, I I should say uh, from the outset that there are a lot of studies of sovereign debt and sovereign lending uh, interested in uh, unearthing the criteria used by investors to evaluate states. So do they care about adherence to the gold standard? Is the ratio of uh, debt to sort of national income or GDP important? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Uh, my aim in this book is is different, and I, I would say slightly broader, perhaps. I, I was interested in the book in thinking about uh, financiers, um, uh, thinking about their 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 thought about states in a broader sense, much in the way, as you point out, uh, as you would study a kind of great international legal or political figure uh, like Grotius or Vattel, um, and much in the way you tried to. Uh, dig up or or unearth their conceptions of the polities that make up the international system, Um, which is a slightly unusual question to ask of financiers. uh, And the immediate problem you run into, uh, which is the the question you pose when you want to do that, is what kinds of methods can you apply to do this this type of research? Um, People working in the history of international political thought or international legal thought usually their methods are geared uh, towards sort of uh, two things. One is understanding sort of single great thinkers, right? Uh, And the second one is uh, their methods are geared towards the analysis often of very clear statements, uh, systematic expositions of ideas uh, that are found in treatises uh, that these great figures uh, write. Uh, And, you know, there are many efforts nowadays to expand the canon, etc., but it doesn't really deal with any of the issues I'm, I'm uh, encountering. The first problem for me is I'm dealing with very practical people who rarely, if ever, uh, produce any clear treatises containing their thoughts about the polities that, that constitute the international system, uh, whatever they might be in dif- different epochs, uh, but states specifically in our time. Uh, my second problem is even if a single financier did produce such a treatise, right? Some of them did write um, these kinds of longer texts and maybe with a slightly more systematic exposition of their views. Um, I'm not trying to sort of uh, understand the views of a single financier or even a single bank, but of the large group of financiers involved in sovereign lending, right? In lending capital to sovereign states. and. You know, just as there's no reason to assume that uh, by reading uh, Vattel's Droit des gens, we can get a, a sense of what 18th century diplomats uh, thought at large, there's no reason to think that by reading a single financier's uh, writings, uh, we can get at the thoughts of a whole lot of them. Um, and it's a method, I think, that's tempting. And you see it in a lot of works, I think. Um, uh, it's tempting because it's easy. Uh, it's easy to read and analyze systematic expositions of ideas, but I think, in at least in in my case, it's it's inadequate uh, as a method. And so, the question is like, what is a good alternative to that? How do you do it? Um, which I, 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 as I understand it, that's your question is like, how how do you do this? Um, and so, my solution is is pretty straightforward. I, I would say um, to sort of to delve into financier's thought or the thoughts of any other sort of very practically inclined groups of individuals, um, uh, to to understand how they think about uh, states. Uh, I developed this idea that they use forms of knowledge, right? Uh, And by that, I mean stable and relatively enduring ways of uh, knowing and representing the polities that uh, constitute the international system, right? Um, And the idea is basically this. If you're a financier or a military strategist or a diplomat uh, engaged in some practice like sovereign lending, in the case of financiers, uh, your job requires you to engage with at some level with states or with polities of different sorts and to know some facet of uh, these polities um whichever one is is sort of relevant, I guess, to your to your um tasks. And so to do that, you're gonna have to use or rely on some kind of epistemic tool, right? Uh, some kind of way of, of going about your, your job, even if you never write down clear ideas anywhere about, you know, what are the what is a state or something, or what are the units that make up the international or something like that. Uh, So you possess and rely on some kind of thought uh, regarding the nature of of these things that you're dealing with. And which ones you use tells us something important uh, about what you think these things you're dealing with are. And just to be a little more specific, uh, because this is perhaps slightly abstract, um, uh, let me take an example. Uh, For instance, in the late 18th century, diplomats begin using maps, maps, mapping clear borders uh, when they negotiate peace treaties. Uh, That's an innovation uh, that takes place around that time. And this is in the work of someone called Jordan Branch. Uh, That signals some kind of major shift in the way they think about the polities that make up the international system, the fact that they're territorial with clear borders in terms of their nature. There's a a kind of fundamental shift that we can glean by looking at this the adoption of this new kind of knowledge to define what a polity is. Um, So that's the kinds of things that I'm going to be interested in to understand how financiers and their thought uh, shifts over time. Um, Their thought about, about states and maybe just one last small point here is to say um, one of the places I, I kind of point to, uh, to study these changing forms of knowledge is education. So you can look at how people are educated to understand what kinds of of knowledge are deemed important to know uh, polities. And and by looking in these places, education is not the only place, of course, um, uh, but it is one of the crucial ones. You can kind of get a sense of of what they think is important uh, to, to perform their tasks. Yeah.
1: To, to drill down and just uh, you know paint a picture a little bit of, of who the, the people were that were involved in sovereign lending in this sort of early days that you look at in the book uh, can you talk about what sovereign lending was like in the merchant bank dominated era you know who were the key players uh, and you know what what were they like what was what was lending like at this time
2: mm-hmm so uh... In in the book, uh, I, I outline this this shift from a kind of old world of sovereign lending, uh, which is dominated by these merchant banks, to a kind of newer world of sovereign lending, which which we can discuss uh, later. Um, these merchant bankers um, basically so they're families, right? Think about the Rothschilds. Think about uh, Bearings. Uh, think about the Morgans. These kinds of transnational uh, families. That's that's the actors we're dealing with. Uh, and so as transnational families, they're naturally international. There's a brother, a cousin in Frankfurt, in Naples, in London, in Paris, etc. Uh, sometimes they're not international enough, and so they intermarry. So you have someone like a, a Bering who's going to marry a, a, someone who's a member of the Hope family in Amsterdam, uh, who are also bankers, and so you create these alliances by intermarry. Um, so that's the, the first sort of point about these these merchant banks. The second one is, and you mentioned it in your introduction, uh, is that the goals of these merchant banking families are not sort of those of what you would assume a corporation, a modern day corporation uh, are. They are not simply or just profit seeking. They're after something else, which is social status. Uh, it's probably the best way of, of putting it. Uh, They're seeking to rise socially. And yes, that may entail uh, more money, uh, but that also entails a higher esteem socially. And so uh, their relation to governments uh, through the practice of lending capital uh, has to be understood as one in which merchant banks are seeking two things. Uh, They're seeking both profit uh, and status. so in order to do that, well, uh, they they develop specific uh, tools and they adopt certain uh, forms of knowledge. Uh, and, and the one uh, I outline in the book is uh, gentility. So it, it's, it sounds a little odd when you say it like that, like what is gentility? Is that even a form, a way of knowing? Uh, it, it's a kind of set of dispositions and sort of manners, ways of being in the world that allow them to know uh, heads of states and other sort of important figures like this uh, personally. So it's a means of, of knowing them. Um, and, and it's also a way of sort of, you know, having gentility, being a gentleman uh, also allows you to rise socially. So it allows you to both sort of pursue profit by being acquainted with the right people, but also to sort of yourself uh, gain higher consideration. um so so that's kind of the world of the old merchant banks, the Rothschilds, the Morgans, the these people, um, who really rely on uh, personal knowledge of heads of states, uh, of of um, foreign sort of uh, ministers, et cetera. Um, and they, this old world of of sort of sovereign lending, dominated by merchant banks, relying on this kind of uh, gentility, that is a world that basically uh, dominates sovereign lending from uh, roughly the early 19th century and the emergence of an international sovereign bond market to uh, the interwar period, the 20s, the 30s, right? So quite deep into the 20th century, uh, we have a world of sovereign lending like uh, that is sort of dominated by families, essentially.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, it immediately makes me think that they, are, they sort of resemble um Royalty, in a way, or that they are impersonating royalty and using, sort of the similar, you know, the like you mentioned families intermarrying. That makes me, of course, like think of the Habsburgs. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I, 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 wonder, like, was this a self, sort of a self-conscious mirroring of, you know, over, you know, against royals, or or was royalty, or was part of the status that they are trying to obtain you know, like they wanted to have that similar status or the similar, you know, cultural capital that uh, their aristocracy might've had.
2: Yeah, uh, there is a, I mean, in in the historical literature there are parallels uh, with those dynasties really who like intermarry and and do uh, adopt practices to cement their position uh, that very much, um, the Rothschilds are almost in some ways like self-consciously emulating. There are specific issues uh, within within particular families uh, where it's more complicated to intermarry, say, for the Rothschilds, uh, because they're Jewish. And so the the pool is somehow more limited. And so they face different problems, say, from a sort of Protestant or Anglican or whatever. Um, merchant bank. And so they end up, the Rothschilds, a lot of them end up intermarrying like within the larger family, which is very large, of course, uh, which, which uh, is reminiscent of, of the practice of some some dynasties in early modern Europe. And yes, there there are echoes of that. And you might stretch uh, your, your sort of analogy to say this practice of knowing uh, sovereigns in person uh, is a kind of very normal early modern practice, say for diplomats. There aren't that many ways of knowing a foreign polity, uh, aside from uh, meeting the sovereign uh, in person, or the representative of that sovereign. You know, it's not like they can turn to widely available maps or widely available, I don't know, uh, statistical compendia describing uh, the, the states of Europe, etc. These things are, are much later sort of developments. So. So there's there's a parallel there too in terms of they're kind of men of the ancien regime in some ways these merchant bankers uh, maybe that, that's a bit of a stretch but but very much so in in, in their approach to how one goes about knowing a, a sovereign.
1: What led to the development and rise of the the first joint stock banks the sort of competitors the, more, the modern competitors
2: to merchant banks? Towards the the late nineteenth century. Um, you witness the rise of uh, new kinds of institutions in finance uh, more generally. Uh, And these are what what you just described as joint stock banks. So banks with many shareholders, right? They're not restricted to seven or 10 uh, sort of uh, partners. Um, They they can have hundreds of shareholders, unlimited capital, uh, limited liability, all sorts of characteristics that resemble the banks we know today. Um, These joint stock banks uh, emerge uh, as a result of a set of legal sort of innovations in European countries and in the United States um, over the course of the period from the 1850s roughly to the 1870s. Um, So there are earlier developments, uh, which one could mention, uh, sort of there are joint stock companies earlier in the 19th century and even before, but often what they require are sort of exceptional legal acts, royal charters, um, which are granted only if uh, the uh, sort of institution in question uh, will benefit the crown or, or the country more, more largely. Uh, what happens from the 1850s to the 1870s is that this all goes away. You are you get basically a world in which uh which permits basically the unfettered creation of joint stock companies and specifically uh, joint stock banks with sort of no limits on the capital, on the number of shareholders uh, and, and with full sort of limited liability. Uh, so that's the kind of uh, developments that take place. And they, they happen in, in a bunch of European countries, in France, the United Kingdom, Germany, and then also uh, in, in the United States. At first, of course, joint stock companies are used for a variety of of different purposes, you know, railways. There's all sorts of of reasons to develop these or to allow for the creation of these joint stock companies. Um, But so you have a set of developments that take place in in that era, and partly it serves to tap into the savings of the population at large to finance sort of greater projects. At least that's the hope in many places, Um,
0: slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
1: And you, you discuss in the book how the joint stock banks uh, function differently from the merchant banks, that they, they don't rely on gentility or courtesy uh, or, you know, personal relationships in the same right. way. They, they rely on statistics. So, uh, you know, could you, could you discuss a little bit about the introduction and growth of statistical methodologies in mm-hmm. finance?
2: So joint stock banks eventually become sort of interested in international finance and, and sovereign lending uh, specifically. Um, but they face one major problem. Joint stock banks are initially very national institutions. think like Deutsche Bank, you know Midland Bank, Credit Lyonnais, all these kinds of institutions. Um, they're created often by uh, men from the same country. And you know they might be in touch with the the local head of state in that specific country, but they are not transnational families. They do not have very good networks, and so when they become interested in international finance and sovereign lending, more specifically, uh, there's one problem that immediately arises for them, and uh, that's the problem of how are you going to know the foreign sovereign to which uh, you wish to lend. Um, for the merchant bankers, of course, that's not an issue as we discussed already. And so the way they kind of deal with this is t- to create services or divisions within the banks to deal with the question of sovereign risk. Like how do you assess the um, credit worthiness of a foreign uh, sovereign? And remember, these are not families. They're not, these joint stock banks have no interest in status seeking for its own sake. To the extent that they might want to enhance their reputation or whatever, it's purely to further the goal of profit seeking, right? They're not families. There's turnover in the employees. I mean, it's not. This is not a kind of similar uh, social structure. Um, So they create these divisions to assess sovereign risk, and then the next question is, of course, who do you put in those those uh, offices? Uh, And what they're going to do is to turn to. um, graduates of newly created uh, business schools and schools of government in Europe and then later in the, the United States, um, a lot of the business schools in Europe are created either at the end of the 19th century or in the early 20th century. Uh, in France, HEC, or um, in Germany, the Handelshochschulen, or uh, in um, in England, uh, the, the LSE, for instance. Uh, also in France, Sciences Po is another one, etc. um and so they hire these young men coming out of uh, these these new educational institutions, and the key thing when you look at the curricula in these uh, educational institutions, one of the key uh, types of knowledge that these these people have learned is uh, to compare states with the help of statistics, right? Debts, all sorts of things. I mean, that's a kind of knowledge that they're taught uh, as a matter of course, uh, and you can see that throughout the edu- educational. Uh, uh, curricula of these different institutions, which I had the pleasure of reading uh, uh, yeah, um, and uh, and so you see you see they they're all trained in this specific discipline. So what is statistics? Um, initially, statistics is actually quite a young discipline back then. It emerges in the late eighteenth century in Germany. it's called statistic. And the primary purpose of uh, statistic is to um, compare the power of different states on the basis of quantifiable data. Uh, Initially, there's a bunch of non-quantifiable stuff, but that gets weeded out pretty quickly. So it's a discipline that's very much oriented towards questions of foreign policy. Um, It emerges out of the science of like cameralism in law faculties in Germany. And so it's people concerned with the power of the state in relation to other states. Um, And, you know, I don't want to exceptionalize the sort of German case. There are similar developments going on elsewhere in Europe. Um, uh, in in England, you have like political arithmetic that begins earlier on, but there are some interstate comparisons, uh, you know, in, in the late seventeenth century. But really, that gets going in the in the later eighteenth century as well. There, with people like John Campbell uh, writing on the present state of Europe and things of this sort. In any case, that discipline emerges then in the late 18th century and then spreads in the 19th century by means of publications, you know, The Economist. There's tons of publications of this sort that are created, Uh, national statistical institutes that publish uh, data uh, and things of this sort. And eventually the kind of transmission belt to the world of finance are these educational institutions. Um, That's the people that that's going to churn out are going to go work in banks and they're going to start thinking uh, in terms of comparing states with numbers systematically. And out of this development, we get the first kind of sovereign credit ratings. Uh, the first one we know of is in 1898. And I think the first person to kind of dig them out was Marc Flandreau. Um, and he kind of, uh, you know, went to the same archive following his his lead. And uh, and yeah, so you see at the Crédit Lyonnais in 1898, the first systematic uh Sort of credit ratings of sovereign um, in in that bank, um, so that's how sort of statistics slowly penetrates, uh, so to speak, in, in the world of, of finance and of sovereign lending, really more specifically.
1: Um, so, so statistics and these sort of, you know, as you describe the you know, introduction of credit ratings, start to play a more significant role in how sovereign lending is determined. Who. Mm-hmm you know who gets what which which country which nations are able to uh mm-hmm. get loans uh and that you then describe in the book how the joint stock banks or you know the, their sort of successors the larger larger banks uh and and other uh you know other organizations like insurance companies start to triumph over the merchant banks so mm-hmm. I, I know that that you know you you cover that it's a long period of time it's about you know a hundred years for, for the for this victory to finally happen but i was wondering if you could just give give a a brief overview of, of what this period was like
2: yes um so to pick up where i left off i suppose uh, by the early 20th century there are some actors including joint stock banks engaged in this kind of regular statistical assessment of states, right? So we have these fully profit-seeking actors just continually evaluating states. Uh, The thing is, they are still um, the junior players in the practice of sovereign lending. Uh, The dominant players in this sort of realm uh, are still merchant bankers until the 1920s, 1930s, the interwar period, basically. So what you're gonna have are different sets of developments uh, by means of which the, the practice spreads and then triumphs. The first one uh, where you see the practice spreading is uh, new institutions sort of adopted. Uh, so you have newly created credit rating agencies in the US, the, the ones we nowadays call Moody's, Standard & Poor's, Fitch, uh, a lot of them are, are born in, in that time frame in the early 20th century. And uh, right after World War I, uh, as the U.S. is becoming the world's banker, um, they begin rating states the world over. Uh, So they start attributing grades to states, uh, you know, a whole set of states to which um, creditors in the U.S. might be uh, lending. And in order to do that, what do they do? Well, it's really the same process uh, to some degree as the uh, European banks earlier on. They hire people with uh, this time PhDs in economics. And what do these people mobilize to assess states? Well, they mobilize statistical knowledge to a large extent. Um, uh, you know, you have people like Max Winkler, who, who writes books about uh, sovereign, sovereign debt and sovereign lending and, and works uh, in a rating agency like this. Um, rating agencies, of course, are not lending money. They're, they're in the business of just grading uh, states. Um, similarly, you have developments, uh, within the f- sort of an international organization, the league of nations who begins sort of certifying or giving its seal of approval, so to speak to various loans to, uh, uh, sovereign states in central and Eastern Europe. Um, and it does that again, uh, by means of statistical evaluations, right? It gathers reams and reams of, of statistical data, uh, that that's one of its main legacies uh, in order to sort of certify, uh, Different loans, uh, and of course, the people who who work in in this uh, in the League of Nations uh, financial sort of branch, uh, they will go on to work for the World Bank or the IBRD and the the IMF uh, later on, as um, Patricia Clavin has showed in in her work on on the League of Nations economic and financial organization. Um, so that's the first development: the spread to these different institutions of this practice. Um, the, the second one uh, is basically from the 1930s until really the end of the stylized kind of Bretton Woods era, uh, private international finance plays a smaller role in some ways uh, in, in the world uh, because capital cannot flow freely uh, across borders. Um, this is the kind of, uh, you know, the embedded liberalism um. Uh, Idea in some ways, you can have free trade, but no free international finance, no, no capital flows, uh, unrestricted capital flows. And so, uh, sovereign lending doesn't, sort of private sovereign lending, doesn't uh, happen quite as much. Uh, you have states sort of uh, tapping into domestic pools of capital. Uh, some economists call that financial repression. So, they force certain economic actors to hold uh, their debt. Uh, you know, by means of regulation and capital cannot flow out of the country. So that's very convenient. Uh, Other forms of lending are sort of by international institutions, export credit agencies or bilateral loans between countries. But this is not what I've been talking about, which is private uh, sovereign lending. And basically, to end my story and answer your question, it's only in the kind of 70s, late 70s and early 1980s that all states once again become primarily dependent on uh, private international capital when they're borrowing uh, not international institutions or, or things of this sort and um, so you have developments like rating agencies resume rating activities which they had stopped for a long time because well there was there was no real market there uh, and banks revive their sovereign ratings department like Citibank for example um, and it's at that time that uh, the Sort of new sovereign lending the world of these i say joint stock banks but by that point there are more and more actors you know using the same methods as, as joint stock banks uh, that this world triumphs so states now face from the late 17 uh, 17 1970s early, early 1980s they face this world of purely profit seeking sort of financiers continually evaluating them with the help of reams of statistical data um and that's kind of the world we find ourselves in uh, since the 1980s, right? The world of uh, Edgardo, who spoke, speaks about bond vigilantes, or the world of James Carville, who wants to, uh, you know, come back reincarnated as the bond market. Um, it's that world of of sort of these uh, joint stock companies uh, keeping constant tabs uh, on sovereign states uh, with these con- continual statistical evaluations. That kind of that defines our, our time in some ways, and it's one of the the key features that makes sovereign lending uh, in our own time unique. The book that was sort
1: of in the back of my mind as I was reading uh, was the book Bowling Alone. Mm. Um, I don't know, the Robert Putnam book. And Mm -hmm. I was just thinking a lot about this, you know, general thesis of this idea of like the decline of social capital. Uh, And I just thought it really interesting, this kind of presentation that you had of uh, these original merchant bank, sovereign lenders caring about, status as much as they did profit. And, you know, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, how John D. Rockefeller, you know, in, endowed, uh, you, you know, the University of Chicago and founded museums and libraries and all these things. And obviously that still exists today, but it's, uh, it seems to be uh, almost, almost like, you know, determined in this way, not necessarily to increase status, but to uh, you know maybe act as a band-aid to increase the <laughs> increase profitability um, and you know I, it, it got me just also thinking today too about like esG and and other things that seem to be pushing back against uh, this model that you describe so uh, you know just to sort of bring us up to the present you know how would you describe the the current state of sovereign lending?
2: when I begin the book uh i I talk about the fact that uh, in most studies of, of sovereign debt and sovereign lending, um, financiers are almost absent. So we talk about these abstract financial markets and we project onto them sort of uh, desires, intentions, goals uh, that that we basically make up. Um, and and then that allows us to make all sorts of assumptions. And in, in this book, what I wanted to do was to put financiers back at the heart of the uh, the history of sovereign lending, uh, and specifically the way uh, in which they think about uh, states to which they lend money, um, and if you follow that path, um, then you have to think, of course, of the present in, in the same way. And um, when I, I I look at the sort of the present, um, I can't. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict what's going to happen, but I can see sort of two. Different or ideal typical uh, alternatives um, to the, the kind of world of sovereign lending we've been living in. Uh, the first one is, I'll, I'll outline the two in turn. The first one is a world in which um, asset management companies uh, like BlackRock or like Vanguard or State Street a world where they become the main uh, investors in um, sovereign debt so these companies are enormous i forget how many assets i mean it's melted a bit uh, recently but like blackrock had almost 10 trillion under managed assets under management or something something incredible like that um and one of the unique features of these companies is that they're trying to they're shying away from the active management of their Assets and instead they rely on these index funds. Um, And these indexes are designed by index providers like S&P, MSCI, or FTSE. Um, And the question that would immediately emerge in such a world is how are sovereign um, bond sort of index funds designed, right? So uh, they they would design a set of different funds, um, I don't know, emerging markets like sovereign bonds or things like that. And um, and investors could put their money in there. Um, the question is, how do these uh, how do these index funds get uh, get designed? What kind of knowledge would be used to group countries together in a a, a single uh, fund, and to sort of yeah to group them? And that of course there are huge distributional implications because once you put a certain country in a fund, you can't just pull funds out. Uh, of of those sovereign bonds. So you can't get the same kinds of uh, sudden shifts in in investment in different countries, sovereign debt that you get in the previous world. Um, There are people working on on asset management companies like uh, Jan Fichtner or uh, Benjamin Brown uh, in, in uh, Germany. And I mean, I can't say very, very much what is going to happen, but that's one world that we can try to think about. Um, You know, are the index funds designed in the same way with the same kind of knowledge that credit rating agencies use to, to rank states? Or is it kind of different um, type of knowledge that used that's used because the time horizon is much longer uh, in, a, in that kind of investment? So that's one world. Um, I think the second world, like, again, this is ideal, typical, that you can imagine is... Um, Basically, in the last sort of decade or even more, 15 years, uh, you've seen like the rise of central banks uh, in sovereign bond markets. And uh, to some extent, that's reminiscent of uh, the immediate sort of post-war context, post-World War II context. Uh, But it's not quite the same uh, for at least two reasons, I suppose. Um, First, these banks, central banks, are not just doing the state's bidding, like helping them borrow at, at cheaper costs. Um, they're, they're, they're engaging in sovereign bond markets uh, to stabilize the shadow banking system, right, which relies, relies sorry, on sovereign bonds uh, as collateral. So it's an important asset class. Um, and uh, so they're not simply doing the government's bidding. So when we try to sort of imagine what a world dominated by central banks, a world of sovereign lending dominated by central banks would look like, we have to bear that in mind. The key question is like, what kind of knowledge would central banks or do central banks deploy to determine the duration and sort of scope of their intervention in sovereign bond markets? And so the politics, the political questions that arise in in a world of this sort, of course, is about central bank uh, independence and sort of democratization, right? Who gets to make the decision as to how much central bank intervenes? Um, But I think... I'm an IR guy. Uh, when you think on a global level, there's like two further issues uh, that arise. Uh, the first is central banks across the world have very uneven capabilities in terms of participating in sovereign lending, especially when uh, your home country, your sovereign uh, borrows in a foreign currency, right? That limits immediately how much you can do as a central bank depending on reserves, et cetera. And then the second question, uh, on a global level is what does it mean to democratize central banks which are domestic institutions uh, but with global ramifications in terms of their actions and there is no easy way out here That's a slightly insoluble sort of political question for me um uh yeah so that's the two worlds that i can kind of imagine when i try to sort of design ideal types in my head kind of asset management company dominated world perhaps and kind of central bank dominated, uh, world of sovereign lending and both have quite different dynamics to the one I've described and, and from one another too. Yeah. Is there
1: anything else, you know, related to this topic that you are looking at either for continuing work, uh, research, or just, you know, anything that since this, this book has come out that you have, uh, thought about as something, uh, that people should, should take a look at.
2: Um, Yes, I I mean I have two like immediate uh future projects and I I guess I'll talk about I can say a word on one of them which is related to your your the question you just posed. Um I've become more and more interested in central banks um and how individually and also collectively in institutions like uh, the BIS or the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision uh, how they construct financial hierarchies. So among nations, so one example we've heard a lot uh, about in recent years is um this uh these swap lines that the federal reserve extended to foreign central banks um after the crisis of oh seven o eight and then later on you know in the during the covid uh crisis recently um so one of the questions that that one might ask about these swap lines is um like on what basis does the Federal Reserve decide who gets a sort of unlimited access to dollars through a swap line, who gets sort of more limited access or who gets no swap line at all and instead has to use some kind of repo facility exchanging treasuries for dollars or something like that? Um, How is this hierarchy constructed? Because it affects profoundly like the life chances of different polities, whether they get access to a sort of unlimited access to dollars or or not. Um, So so I have like kind of two questions. One is trying to gather information on all the different kinds of policies that the world's major central banks individually and collectively uh, devise and which create international hierarchies. And another one, um, another question about the nature of those hierarchies. So how are they designed? Like what kinds of criteria are used by central banks to place different states in different um, sort of buckets, so to speak. Uh, I've written a short article uh, uh, recently uh, in the review of IPE uh, on regulations surrounding uh, the risk associated to different sovereign debts uh, in the first Basel agreement, an obscure agreement about financial regulation. But the implications are, and the the questions were very sort of interesting. They were about uh, precisely precisely this which sort of sovereigns should be thought of as riskless which should be thought as like rather risky investments and the interesting thing to me was that it was central banks calling these shot, the shots not private actors and they were imposing their decisions on uh, on the market through uh, through regulation and so it's these kinds of things I, i've become quite interested in how central banks design international financial hierarchies so that's my next kind of direction
0: maybe um,
1: yeah, that sounds like a fantastic route to go down. I'm endlessly fascinated by central banks. Uh, and I think that many people, especially in recent years, the past two years, it seems that, you know, all the time, what Jerome Powell or the ECB or, you know, rate raises in New Zealand, uh, somehow those are, are making headlines. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I think I think that's a fascinating path to go down. Well, Quinton, thank you so much for being a guest in the New Books Network. It was great having you on. Uh, and uh, once again, the book is called States and the Masters of Capital, Sovereign Lending, Old and New from Columbia University Press. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Caleb, for having me.